In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. The little while that Jesus refers to when speaking with his disciples is his suffering and death. He spoke these words on the night when he was betrayed. What Jesus says will happen is exactly what happened. It happened in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. A little while and you will not see me. Jesus is not predicting that he will become invisible for a little bit. He's telling his disciples that they themselves will flee and hide when he is led away to be crucified. Perfectly visible for the whole world and everything under the sun to see. The little while is self-imposed. For they could have seen. They could have looked. They could have been there when they dared not to be, but they couldn't. They couldn't bring themselves to see the familiar face of Jesus become unrecognizable by sadness and gore and sorrow. And since they could not bear to see it, they hid from themselves that familiar love which Jesus had taught them to know. They hid their eyes from that love as it came to its truest and warmest expression on the cross. For that face that had no form or comeliness to it, or beauty that it should be desired, here another reference to Isaiah 53, was the face of God and his deepest compassion towards sinners. But alas, they esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, that the scripture of Isaiah 53 might be fulfilled. The little while of sorrow that Jesus spoke of to his disciples was a little while when they hid themselves. And they would feel like they had to bear their own sorrow and carry their own burden. It was a little while when they would try and fail to do it all on their own, nursing their guilty cowardice, regretting their failed hopes, cursing themselves for their inability at the very least to look on him whom they pierced. The little while was a little while of their own faithlessness, and so it goes. But during that little while, he from whom they hid their faces was bearing their griefs and carrying their sorrows for them. As the same Isaiah 53 says in the whole point of the chapter, Jesus was bearing all that could possibly disturb them, for he went to the Father. His Father did not turn away from it. His Father looked. His Father saw all your sin and mine and all the world's sin get every ounce of punishment we all deserved. Whatever the searching Spirit of God can find in guilty hearts, the Father watched his Son pay for it and cover it with his blood. Jesus went to the Father who looked at what no one else could bear to see. Jesus was carrying in himself the guilt of all men. God saw what we often ignore in ourselves and hide from one another and lie about. But God saw where he himself put it. The Father saw where he imputed it to his Holy Son. The Father saw his Son suffer and die to take it away. 
In his little while of forsakenness, Jesus was securing peace and joy for all our little wiles of despair and guilt and faithlessness, hidden from all but those who wept at a distance and from those who mocked up close, hidden from those to whom Jesus speaks this morning, that evening of a little while, was the sacred face of God's own Son, willingly carrying an eternity of judgment for sinners, all within the span of a little while. This was so that after a little while, we might see him again and rejoice in the eternity of blessing which he freely gives. We, I say, and this is important, we, for the words we heard from Jesus to his disciples are also words to us. Yes, his words had immediate context. Jesus spoke these words after he instituted the sacrament of the altar and washed his disciples' feet. He spoke of their little while of hiding for fear of the Jews while he himself suffered and died. But even the prophet Isaiah says, we. Even the prophet Isaiah identifies with what these timid disciples did because even the prophet Isaiah had sinned and he knew it. He was a man of unclean lips, he said, just like the rest of us. And so with the prophet Isaiah, we also say we. We hid our faces. We often do just what these disciples did. And this is because we've got an image of what love should appear to be. And we're more familiar with this love. We recognize it more dearly by nature, the love of what we think love should be. We're more familiar with this than with the love of God that truly is, that takes our sins seriously and provides provides a solution to it. Greater love hath no man than this. And yet we get depressed when love doesn't look like we think it should look. When the greater love does not submit to the lesser love, and does not please us the same way lesser loves promise to please us. We think that God has withdrawn his love when his face is not shining the way we want it to, as though because his face is not shining as we think it should, that God does not see or care. Faithlessness. Here was the cause of the disciples' sorrow. And here is the cause of yours. Faithlessness. And I would venture to guess that this was why Isaiah himself confessed that he was a man of unclean lips. He complained when he suffered, just like I do. The cross hurts, and we turn from it. And then God lifts the pain, and we're ashamed at how much we complained and murmured. And I mean by this cross, not the one that Jesus bore, that hurt only him. No, I mean rather the cross that the disciples were most afraid of and that we are most scandalized by. It is a cross that we must bear. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What had the disciples lost 
that night of despair, and the next day and the next until Easter night. What had they lost but their lives? To turn from the cross is the same thing as to turn from Jesus' cross. As he also says, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The cross we must take up hurts. Now, not all pain is a cross, but every cross is painful. Much pain is useless and purposeless. What makes it a cross is that it serves a purpose. It, it is that it is pain which tempts Christians to turn away from the cross of Jesus who bought them. And so all pain can be a cross, but it is only a cross for a Christian whose inner man, whose new man, is struggling against his old man, his flesh. Inasmuch as it tempts, therefore, our crosses are messengers of Satan that buffet us like Paul's thorn in the flesh. But inasmuch as God allows the devil to afflict us, he tells us to bear it with hope that only Jesus can teach us and give us. We hope in his mercy. Jesus says to Paul, his grace is sufficient and that his power is made perfect in his weakness. And so it is in ours. He gives us pain to suffer so that we might not look for our worthiness to follow him in ourselves, but in him, in his cross. So that we might know and feel what Jesus overcame and discover the end result of all that the devil promises to be nothing. Pain produces nothing unless our souls look to him. Jesus teaches us to suffer for a little while so that we might see where he himself crushed Satan's head. He bore his cross without opening his mouth in self-defense or complaint, but only in prayer for us so that his seeming triumph or God's saints might truly be only a little while. Now think of that. And see also what disturbs Jesus so greatly in our gospel text this morning. It is not what he is about to endure. He will later focus on that in the garden with bloody sweat. No, but for now, he is focused with kind and brotherly concern, not on how heavy his cross is, but on the little while of his disciples' cross. And not because he cringes at the pain we will endure, but because he is very concerned for our faith. With this concern for you also, he bore his cross. With this concern for you, he helps you and gives value to everything you have to suffer. So it is pain we must daily embrace so that we learn to look to Jesus when afflictions and temptations come, to find pleasure in what our souls need, even above the pleasures our bodies crave. This is what it means to bear a cross. God knows we need the practice. And if we don't learn to suffer, well, we'll suffer anyway, but if we don't learn to suffer and to look for God's help in Christ when we do suffer, then there will be no little while at all. If we don't learn to bless God for what he aims to teach us, even before we know for sure what the specific lesson might be, and we might not know for sure until heaven, when we are given 2020 insight into all that we endured but for now, we must focus on that 2020 insight of his word that tells us the purpose of Christ's suffering. If we don't learn to bear our crosses and patience for the sake of what great lessons God has already taught us in the gospel, 
then no, there won't be a little while at all, but a long while of eternal sorrow. These little whiles are for our good, to strengthen our faith and reliance on Jesus. God sends crosses for a little while in order to help us deny ourselves and look forward to the relief that he promises. But crosses still hurt. God chooses what cross to send us every day. He chooses how to loosen the leash he puts on the devil. And he knows they hurt. They're often physical, often emotional, often external, always internal. Often not our fault. Sometimes very much our fault. Always teaching repentance. God doesn't punish his children. He teaches them. He teaches us to repent. Crosses bear heavy on our hearts, and they must if they're going to be good for us. They must test our faith if they're going to do any good for us. We must lose our life to find it. Our daily cross is the daily risk and pain and inconvenience of being opposed, of being hated and mocked. It is the risk of losing what we love most to our shame in order to retain and keep the love of God. If only we can keep both, but that's not how it works. In order to remain with Jesus and see God's love for you in the crucifixion of his Son, you must risk your own comfort and learn to love his love above your own. You must lose your life to find it, loving his life more than yours. You must expect crosses to be placed on you and learn to expect what Jesus says will occur. The world will hate you. The devil will hunt you. Your own flesh and blood will haunt you with sin, lust, desire, pride, laziness, and preference for the easy way that leads to your destruction, and to crown it all with what we ought to be most ashamed of, our old Adam, sinful nature, will want to whine and complain all along the way when we don't get our way, as though God were leading us down a bad way. So you must learn to expect the cross which alone can redirect you to find the narrow way. To find what you truly need, not on easy streets, not in financial independence, not in the world's admiration or acceptance or in wealth or in the pleasures that never really satisfy. No, you find what you truly need in the favor of God towards sinners who has mercy on those who have pursued all these things to their own hurt. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This favor was not won easily. These pleasures were won and secured where love became more than familiar, where love became real, where love actually accomplished something for you that lasts longer than your pleasant mood can hold on to. Because it was purchased for you at the cost of God's own dignity and life. The familiar love we have been taught to know becomes more recognizable in our distress and sorrow, not less recognizable. More precious when we share with Jesus, Jesus the scorn of the world and the shame the world heaps upon us. When the Apostle Paul begs us as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, he's telling us to bear our cross. He's telling us to bear the heaviest cross you'll ever bear. He's telling us to deny what promises the most relief and pleasure that you ever desire. He's telling us to deny our flesh. 
to deny for the comfort of ourselves what the world rejoices in. He's telling us that this is not our home. Heaven is our home, where we were born. We were born by water and the word. We were born to have an eternal future with God in heaven cleansed and redeemed with a good conscience and joy forever. We were born again by being buried with Christ into death, into his death, death by crucifixion, death by self-denial, shame, and with nothing to look forward to, nothing at all but death. That is, of course, nothing but death and resurrection to eternal joy, if that is worth it. And pleasures in God who gives all good things, it is worth it. And looking to him who counted it worth it, we find our worthiness in him. For we who have been joined to him in a death like his are also joined to him in a resurrection like his. And so we learn by the crosses God sends to us not to hide our faces from them, but to turn our faces to the cross that Jesus bore so that all our little whiles end in seeing Jesus again. Just consider the pleasures to come. They are more than what excite the flesh. They are what give peace to your conscience and joy to every heart that mourns in repentance. It is the pleasure of knowing that our flesh will rise without sin. Your crosses teach you to want this. Jesus' cross teaches you to own it. Or can it be that Christ's suffering ends in glad triumph, but yours will not? What great comfort to know that he chooses your crosses. Consider the pleasures of God's right hand. To conclude our gospel lesson's comforting point, we hear again from Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is the pleasure of the Lord, that he shall see his seed. That he shall see his children, his heritage, his church, his poor, distressed, and persecuted heirs. That he shall see what he has produced in his suffering. In this one line of Isaiah 53, we see what made it all worth it for God's suffering servant. Who opened not his mouth as a lamb led to slaughter. It is this, that he see his seed. He, the promised seed of the woman, sees what his crucifixion accomplished. He sees the value of the new birth we have as children of God and the joy his children have and the absolution which he commanded, the preaching of the gospel where he joins us, where two or three listen in fellowship of believers who gather around the communion of his own body and blood in the sacrament. This is what he rejoices in. He turns cursed children of Adam into blessed co-heirs with himself of eternal life. What he shares with you and gives you and wins for you, this makes all he suffered to gain worth dying for. So says Isaiah. And this, in these words, he shall see his seed. The children of his bride for whom he laid down his life. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, because by prolonging his own days, God prolonged yours too. All this means that Jesus shall see what good comes through the suffering of his bride as well. For a man cannot see his seed 
without seeing his wife give birth. And all jokes aside, that's not exactly easy street either if you love your wife. For his sake, all her suffering is made a cross. This happens when she embraces the imperishable word of the Lord that puts life in her womb and in her heart. For the time she is sad because her hour has come, but she rejoices when a man is born into the world. She rejoices that Christ's suffering has turned her suffering into, well, into something worth it, something fruitful, something that she could not have done without him laying down his life for her and giving himself to her and loving her. Our translations say that a human being is born. Yes, but the word used in the Bible is a man. This isn't to emphasize that a male child rather than a female child was born. That's not the point at all. No, but a man. A child of Adam. An adult with a future that Adam spoiled. A baby with hope to be full grown. A mother rejoices not just that a helpless little baby is born and lives. She rejoices that what is born to her is born to live forever with God. This is her joy that no one can take from her. Our crosses earn nothing. A woman in pain may produce nothing but death. We need crosses. They teach us to deny ourselves and confess Christ instead. They teach us to know that Jesus is with us because he made his cross worth it by giving his life into death and paying for all our sins and making intercession for the transgressors. And so he promises us, promises us that our crosses are worth it too. He knows how best to end whatever sorrows he sees fit to give us. He knows how to lift our crosses because he knows how to rise from the dead. And his Father, to whom we are granted access even now, who raised his Son, did so because he had already declared us holy and righteous in his sight. And so with that, sure we are smitten and afflicted. Sure we are stricken. But because we learn to esteem Jesus as our Savior and Head, we learn to esteem ourselves as highly blessed and loved by God. Because by God's word and comfort, we learn to rejoice in the truth. We learn to rejoice in eternity. We rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. We learn to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice in what endures unto eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.